Hey, I'm Barry Magliditi and this is the Comeback Game Podcast. Today we're talking about faith and ethics in business and how surviving a holocaust relates to growing a business and living a fulfilling life. Today's guest is Scott Shea, who is the co-founder and chairman of the Signature Bank, a $50 billion equity firm based in New York City, who started out and lost over $2 million per month for 21 months before uh, growing into something extraordinary. They're the only bank over $4 billion that during the financial recession were able to see financial growth. Scott's the author of Getting Your Groove Back and also the book Good Faith. And on today's episode, we talk about the two fundamental attitudes and keys to grow a long-term financially successful company. And those who, who may also be wondering, how do I bring faith and ethics into growing my business where it's a bit of a dog-eat-dog world? How do I grow a business with faith and ethics uh, so my business can actually thrive not just survive. Today, we also talk about the number one key mistake that most business owners make and overlook uh, when they're growing their company and why they're spending way too much money on acquiring new clients. And I, I guess be prepared to walk away feeling not only more clarity around your business and where you're at and the long-term game, but also prepared to walk away feeling inspired and uh, unstoppable. And for any of those listeners out there who are currently not growing fast enough or maybe you're feeling that you're not growing as profitably as you'd like to and you're working too many hours, I want to invite you to apply for a game plan session with one of the Game Changers coaches, where we can have a conversation to see if or how we might better help you and whether or not the Game Changers coaching program is the right fit to help to grow, scale, and help you succeed in business. Once again, my name is Barry Maddy, CEO and founder of the Game Changers and your host for the Comeback Game podcast. I look forward to bringing this one to you today. Uh, g'day, Scott. We're joined today. Uh, I believe you're in New York. I'm here in Melbourne, Australia. And for the viewers and listeners that haven't uh, heard or seen you before, could you just share a little bit about you and your background? Sure. I grew up in Chicago, Illinois, in East Rogers Park, if anybody knows that, which is sort of the other side of the tracks, uh, from a family of modest means. My father survived the Holocaust. Um, wow. was fortunate enough to, as he viewed it, to be liberated from Dachau by the American forces. And when he was liberated, he was 60 pounds. So probably hours or days from death. Always viewed yeah. himself as really, uh, and we can talk about this later, really having experienced miracles. Uh, I, we grew up in a, I grew up in a one bedroom apartment. My parents had the bedroom, I had the dining room and my uncle, my mother's brother for many years uh, lived in the living room. So from there, uh, I went and I went to college. I went to Northwestern partially with a union scholarship. And then I went to business school and then I went to wall street, um, and went to worked at Solomon brothers, uh, was involved, was, uh, helped found a private equity comp, a private equity firm with Lou Ranieri, who in the United States is one of the founders of the mortgage market. And then I had this crazy idea to start a bank in New York which we started from scratch called Signature Bank with $42.5 million and five offices and, we, and, a, and a monthly operating loss at the start of $2.5 million. And uh, thankfully we broke even after 21 months, we went public after 34 months and we're presently just about a $50 billion bank. And what I'm most proud of in many ways is we are the only bank in the United States above 4 billion that did not have a down year during the, during the financial crisis. Wow. So we avoided doing 
we weren't geniuses, but we avoided doing the stupid stuff that a lot of people did. So yeah. very, uh, it, it's, it's been a, uh, it's been a career that I've enjoyed and, but I'm a big believer in, in having sort of second sets of intellectual challenges. I've written two books and I'm currently on book tour for my second book in good faith, questioning religion and atheism. Yeah. So I think this leads us into the topic that we want to talk about a bit today. Like you were the only bank above uh, 4 billion that didn't see a, a downturn. And I can imagine that uh, ties into what we're about to talk about today, which is around faith and ethics uh, in business. Now this is an interesting one because I've certainly noticed a trend a lot um, over the last 10 or 15 years of people like coming out. And what I mean by that is I remember, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, not so much in the States, the States has always had quite a religious um, background, but more so, I, I guess, in Australia, if you were, um, you know, posting or seen to be of faith or of spirituality, you were kind of like out there. Whereas this day and age, there seems to be a lot more people that are willing to, when I say come out, willing to share their faith and their relationship with uh, creator, with father, whatever, you know, your, your, your faith beliefs are. Let's talk a little bit around uh, faith and ethics in business. I'd love to get your take on this. So here's the thing. I think faith is part of what I do and, and what I am and how I behave. And I'd say there's two things that I would want to leave your listeners with and viewers with. One is the golden rule. So I believe from a banking, so the golden rule as Hillel formulated it was don't do unto others as you wouldn't want done unto you. So the way I translate that into banking is to say, don't make a loan that you would be embarrassed to show your depositor. If you've got some sort of crazy CDO squared that, you know, you, you're convinced you understand it, but nobody else would. Well, that's not a loan you should make because it breaks that golden rule. You know, the positive way of saying is do unto others as you want done unto you, but the negative way is better. And then the second thing that I would say, and this I absolutely have learned from my faith journey, is that watch out for idolatry. And here's what I mean by that. And, and it's going to take a little bit of a securitous route, but we'll get there. And it, and it actually is how we to some degree staved off the financial crisis because we didn't have a down, did, didn't have a down year, didn't have a down quarter. Yeah. And that's this, the Bible defines idolatry. And if you read it and if we took the time, you'd see it very simply. It's not what most people think, you know, bowing down to statues and magic making that it's there too. But idolatry is a set of lies about power. It's about ascribing super authority or superpower to finite beings, people, ideologies, natural processes, or in the ancient world, animals. So for example, we thought we licked the God King Pharaoh 3,300 years ago when, we, you know, when, when, the, when the Israelites left Egypt. But in reality, the whole 20th century was a set of God King Pharaohs. Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, the Assad family, the Kim family. I can go on and on. The Chinese Communist Party, um, for sure these days. You know, how did Stalin convince people that he had the authority to order all the kulaks murdered, starve a quarter of the Ukraine, 
send tens of millions to the gulag and nobody challenged him because mm-hmm. he had super authority and he used the same tropes as as pharaoh poetry pageantry theater parades myths all backed up of course with brutal power mm. so that's it on a macro basis but let's look at idolatry on a micro basis how did and, and i don't know if all these names are as familiar in australia or worldwide as they are here but people like kevin spacey charlie rose harvey weinstein do these names ring a bell they've all been accused of really abusing women um in in terrible ways and men too actually in the case of kevin spacey in terrible ways uh how did they get to do it well they set themselves up as idols they were char charlie rose was unquestionable or harvey weinstein and unquestioned in his industry they gave the truth and here's the funny thing in the run-up to the financial crisis, you had all sorts of people who assumed this sort of super authority. Like, why do we, uh, one thing we never did is trust the rating agencies. Who said they were geniuses? Who, who said they had, could determine something was AAA or not? Actually, 90, what, 6% of all mortgages that they gave AAA ratings to in, 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 the, in the run-up to the crisis were downgraded to junk. You know, if you actually look and wonder, does the emperor have any clothes or are they just setting themselves up as this idol, this unquestioned authority, Mm. that solves a lot. And that's how you can avoid also being taken in in business is check if this entity or this person is deifying themselves. You know, are they saying, well, do this because I say so. I'm the expert. Don't don't question me. Mm. If you avoid that, you'll avoid a lot of problems. It's, it's, it's interesting you share that because something that um, often I'm a bit flabbergasted by is if we look at the business coaching space, uh, for argument's sake, it's an unregulated space. Anyone that's got the ability to call themselves a business coach or, or a life coach for that, that, for that matter can be a coach. And yet you're talking about messing with somebody's livelihood. Like people are hiring you as a perceived expert that has perceived knowledge to help them out. And all you might be good at doing is running some Facebook ads and, and, and running a sales script on the phone, right? With no proven track records behind you, no case studies, no, no, no doing the time in the trenches. Yet because it's unlegislated, anyone can perceivably put themselves as that figurehead, as that statue. And I think you're exactly right. This is where uh, people can get themselves in a lot of trouble. That being said, though, I've also noticed that although the social channels can paint you as being like, always red and rosy and like, you know, there's never an issue in your life. There started to become almost a backlash as well, where these people or these, these, these beings are being exposed that haven't got the substance to back them up. You know, Facebook for argument's sake, I'm not sure how much you know about Facebook, but Facebook is, is going out to advertisers, audiences and asking for feedback review ratings on the advertiser. And so if you're someone out there selling a course that's not delivering a result, your audience can give you a poor feedback and Facebook will shut down your ad account. So there's always this expansion, this contraction um, that happens. How specifically did this, uh, this, this thing that you've just shared with us impact you not seeing a down quarter throughout the financial recession? Like how was the practical use of that 
in your business different to the others that were above four billion at the time? So here's the thing. I distinguish between good faith and bad faith. And that's, as you can tell from the title of my book, In Good Faith. Good faith is faith that is backed up by evidence. People don't just say, I'm the sole spokesperson for knowledge, or I'm the sole spokesperson for God. Because when people do that, that's actually when bad stuff happens. Um, but if someone, and that's one of the reasons why I think religion, and I think the Bible is so, you know, you may or may not believe in God, but it's rational. You know, there's, there, 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 there's, there's some evidence, you may disagree, but there's some evidence. Believing that Harvey Weinstein or Charlie Rose is a god, or Stalin, or Pol Pot, or some you know Facebook guru is a god, is not evidence based, and mm. not evidence based is how you get to idolatry. I mean, all idols essentially have to lie about their their essential humanity, mm. and 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 I think in a in a in a in a in a, in a very direct way. The one thing that I did get is that's what the rating agencies were doing in the United States. I don't know how much in, in, in Australia, but if they said something was AAA, it was unquestioned. I remember investors coming into our office who criticized us and criticized me sort of pointedly wagging a, 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 a finger at me saying, why aren't you investing in these subprime AAA securities? You're investing in 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 Ginny Mays and in Fannie Mae, you know, in these in these super safe securities. Well, they're AAA and these are AAA. And the rating agencies say they're AAA. So you don't need to really think anymore. You can park your brain at the door. And that's again what idolatry is about. It's, mm. it's saying, I'll believe whatever my idol says. God, King Pharaoh says, throw the Israelite baby boys into the water, done. Um, Harvey Weinstein says to do something, uh, you know, you do it. And, and what, what good religion, what monotheism is about, and what good faith is about, is always questioning. And if you always question, and you're finding, you know, the right answers, then you should continue. I mean, if someone looks into a, a business coach and they find, okay, here are the references, call people and they're busy. You know, if they say, you know, if you need to check my references, you're not a good enough client. You shouldn't even have to check. My, just check my <laughs> Facebook page. Then yeah. you're not turn, a good fit. Turn yeah. slowly and run as fast as you can. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think um, for me, any any like any masters or any gurus or people that I've come across in my lifetime, um, they're very similar to good leaders. And what I mean by that is like outstanding leaders typically don't take don't take the credit. They're not the ones that are necessarily standing in front. They're the ones that allow they're the ones that build others up around them. And I think if, the moment you ever have somebody standing too far out the front talking about how great they are or you should follow me and things like that that to me is a is a red flag you know fortunately or not in the era we, we are in right now um we are required to have some form of social presence right because that's where all our customers are hanging out but i think there's a distinct difference to someone who's putting out a lot of content just to, to someone who's putting out consistent content and great content and as you said has the 
credibility to back them up. So how else, I guess, have you... Jacked one thing there. The Bible yeah. says about Moses in Hebrew, it says Ishan, he was, he was the most modest person there was. And that was part of his leadership because it was authentic. Yeah. And you need to find authentic leaders who, you know, the old joke is, well, humility is just one of my great, many great attributes. Well, mm. it's got to be more than that. You really have to be humble in a deep way and be willing to say it goes back to the golden rule again you know think of the other person as someone who's equal to you and many leaders don't do that well they do they they don't do it if they're not good leaders the good leaders recognize that every person they're leading is equal to them in some way yeah yeah yeah, I absolutely love that. And I also love I love, also love the phrase though as well, like treat others as they would like to be treated. Not just as we'd like to be treated, but how would they like to be treated as well? Where where else has faith played a big part of your business? And the question the reason I ask this, I'm I'm uh, very much you know, maybe slightly different views. I, I would call myself more so probably spiritual than necessarily uh, you know, I was brought up with a Christian background. Um, at about 17 or 18 years old, I started to kind of further explore that until I, I came across a path that for me felt like the right path for me to be on. And very much I, I could, you know, hand on heart say that I would not be where I'm at right now in my business, in my life without that faith, without that connection. Because earlier on back, you know, my, my, my teens, my decisions were made very much logically. And the challenge that I found later in life with logical decisions is they're often based on past experiences. You know, that, that, you know, I would summarize a decision I had to make based on a past experience or based on a prediction of the future, yet there's an unknowingness there. Yet for me, once I started to follow down this path of spirituality, this path of faith, I started to have this connection with, with, with self and source that I felt in many ways guided me beyond what I could see with my logical brain. And there has been like countless times in my life that I've made decisions that have made no logical sense at all to my brain. And those decisions that I've made have flourished and worked out in ways that I never ever imagined possible. And equally, there's times that I haven't followed that knowing. There's times that I've gone, nah, like that just doesn't make sense. Let's follow my brain. And things have all collapsed in on themselves. I'm curious to know with you, Scott, like how else you know, is faith a part of your business journey? specifically and i guess around the success that your business has had as well because to go from you know losing a couple million bucks a month to you know being a 50 billion dollar bank in america and i can imagine it's quite a competitive marketplace like that's a significant significant feat as well so how else have you found that faith has played a a part in that well so I, I'm going to go back if i could to an early business experience when i first got to new york have you ever been to new york no, not yet. We have you. We have this. We had this subway system in those days. It's still not good, but where it wasn't, there no air conditioning in the summer, and it was not heated in the. It was overheated in the winter. And I used to go down to Wall Street to Solomon Brothers when I was first here, and I, I'm from 96th Street. And one day I'm going down the subway. I'm about to go down the subway, and somebody honks, and I recognize him. He's a mid-level tr- bond trader at Solomon Brothers. He's got a nice car and he says, you know what? I'm here every day at this exact same time. He's a very fastidious guy. I'll give you a lift if you're here. 
this is my lucky day. And it was a lot of lucky days. My only problem was that this was before cell phones. So he talked to me the whole time. And um, uh, it's not <laughs> a problem, but he, he would, that was, that was sort of my payment for the trip is he'd tell me his philosophy. And I learned that this fellow idolized himself. He was a self-deify. He was idolat idol really an idolater to himself in that if he could get away with um, messing with the client, taking advantage of the client, as long as the client didn't know, maybe he had a big bid-ask spread and he could get a big, you know, take a lot of money from that big bid-ask spread because those were the days when information wasn't quite as free-flowing, he'd do it. If he could do something to a superior, he'd do it. If he could do something to someone below him, he'd do it as long as he didn't either get caught or wasn't illegal. He loved complicated rules because you could meander around them. And, and, and really the only people who he cared about were his family, sort of, but mostly himself. And I realized that there were a lot of these self-deifiers on Wall Street. And so I have to tell you, I learned you have to be careful of the people you're doing business with because there are people who will try to screw you and not bat an eyelash, not lose a minute's sleep. And you have to be on the lookout and you can actually tell that after a while from talking to enough people. Um, so I'm attuned. Now that doesn't mean that someone has to be a believer. That's not the case. Hmm. But someone has to sign up for that golden rule where they care about other people and, and don't want to mistreat, don't want to do things to other people as they wouldn't want done to themselves. And you can find those people. Hmm. Uh, and, and, and so I'm on the lookout for that in business partners. But you also have to do it yourself. I mean, when, when, you know, when the financial crisis hit, for example, we were one of the few banks that did not renege or pull back loan commitments, even though they were a little bit painful because the deals were struck prior to the, you know, sort of the problems, but we would stick with the loan documents. Look, we, you know, they didn't do what they should do. We, we wouldn't continue, but mm. we'd stick with the loan documents. We would, and, and people remember that. And mm. people remember that even now it's 10 years later and people remember, you know, we didn't mess with anybody and you have to, you can't just talk the talk. You have to walk the walk, even when it costs you money. I, th I think um, you raised a really, really great point there. I see a lot of, um, I guess I, I bring a lot of this, this understanding back to entrepreneurs and business owners because that's typically our market and probably a lot of the people listening. I see a lot of people out there that are so fixated on the short-term gain, like especially a lot of younger, earlier generation entrepreneurs. They're so fixated on the, on the short-term gain that they end up getting into a position where that, that they cause more, more harm than good more pain they need to go through because they're not nurturing a long-term relationship with the client. Now you go back 20 or 30 years ago, business was very different back then. Customer service was very different back then. Now we didn't have access to as many resources or opportunities as what we do right now to service a client, but it was very much about relationships and we lost somewhere along the way. We've kind of lost that. And I do feel we're in an era where in many ways we're kind of being guided, if not some way forced, back to having to look after the client because of how transparent things are. Like you upset a client that they don't even need to be a client. They can be a prospect and they can jump on social media and give you a poor rating. And there goes 
you know, all your hard work at your five stars to, to drop down to one of someone that you've met once for the first time. Yeah. So we are moving to an environment where I think customer service is going to far out trump any, any form of positioning in marketing in business. It's a longer term game. It's a lot longer term game to grow a business. But like you said, you'd have customers coming back to you now five years, 10 years later, because they remember how you treated them. They remember what you've done to them as opposed to those clients that you just all about getting the deal and all about the money. So I tell people to remember, be long-term greedy, you know, yeah. not short-term greedy. Um, long-term greedy is a totally different mindset. And for believers, you know, they should, they're long-term believers are long-term greedy into the afterlife. So they really are long-term greedy, but in yeah. business, let's pull it back a little bit. Don't think about this sale. Don't think about the next sale. Think about, is this, is this, have you built a, a, a relationship with a client who's going to come back to you? Because I have to tell you, it is so much easier to, it's so much harder, should I say, to get a new client than just to maintain a, a current client. People ask me all the time, how did Signature grow to be $50 billion and never having done an acquisition? It's all organic growth, 100% organic growth. Yeah. And I say, the trick is keeping clients. We have very little client attrition. So yeah. everybody who comes on board is a net gain. Whereas most yeah. banks have, they come, they go, there's a lot of churn. And we try to avoid the churn because keeping, and our whole incentive system, the whole way we, that's why I never got what was going on with Wells Fargo because why would you want to add fake accounts? You want to actually have relationships with people. Why would you even have that as a metric? We don't even keep that metric of, you know, just account openings. It's, it's relationships. Yeah. And, and, you know, I don't want to criticize them. They, you know, they, they did whatever they did, but it didn't, it doesn't make any sense. Get yeah. your clients. If they're happy, you know what they're going to do. They're going to work for other clients. And they're going to and that is the best. Yeah. And people lose track of that. They, they sometimes spend too much time and effort trying to get the new clients. And it's, again, it's part of being long-term greedy. Yeah. Yeah. We, we have a, a tool that we use with inside of our business growth programs called the profit approach. And what we find is that most clients that come on board all believe they need to generate more leads to grow their business. And the, the, the challenge with that is, is that to generate more leads, generally costs money, unless you've got a good organic strategy. But most of the time, this day and age, it's easy enough to go and put money into some form of advertising agency. Yet what we do is we go through the kind of five areas of business growth being leads, conversion rates, average sale, lifetime value and profitability. And we structure which area to focus on based on the, the current performance of the business and based on how much uh, equity or assets they've got available to them. And 99% of the time, lead generation is not the hole in the bucket that needs to be focused on. And, you know, we've helped add millions of dollars to people's bottom line through running them through this tool over and over and over again. And what we have seen time and time again is that there is a undervaluing of long-term relationships. There's an undervaluing of lifetime value of clients. But also when you get clients, they typically, if they're happy clients, they typically want to spend more money with you anyway. Like if, if they come on board, clients will keep buying from you until you either upset them or stop selling to them. And so if you've got products of, of services of value to them, they'll keep spending money with you providing that you're servicing them for the long term and not just for their money. You know, one thing that I, I listened to your last podcast and one thing that I remember at the end was you said, look, call us, 
If we can help you, we'll help you. If we can't, we'll direct you someplace else. So I'm a big believer that a quick no is so much better than a slow no. Yeah. And, you know, the answer may and not in the NBS, but, but you know, people tend to, um, they don't, they, they need to be straight with the client up front. If there's not a match, okay, there's not a match, let's part, you know, friends, let me help you. I heard about this, you know, guy or gal, maybe he or she can help you and let's move on. Yeah. But people don't do that because, again, it's not part of being the long-term greedy. It's being short-term greedy. Well, maybe yeah. I can figure out a way to convert this person to be a client or this company to be a client. No, you can't. So let's move on. It's better for them, better for you. I, I agree. We, we speak to between um, 60 to 80 people a week. And out of those 60 to 80, we, we would let into our programs between five and six. So, you know, we could, we could yeah. be letting a lot more in. We could be selling a lot more and making a lot more money, but we make sure that we pick the right clients that we can absolutely help and that equally to a right, a right culture fit for the community we've created. That's good for you. That's, I mean, I, I would, I say the same thing to people. Make sure, you know, also part of the reason why our attrition rate is so low and why we really have very few clients leave us is that we, sort of pre-screen them. They're the right clients. It's a good fit for us. It's a good fit for them. They're not sort of wondering why they're here. They're at the bank and we're not wondering why they're at the bank. Yeah. And you know, the biggest thing, and I'll tell you where, if I have one thing to impart, is with employees. I mean, I know some people tell me, you know, hire them fast and fire them fast. That is like the dumbest idea. The dumbest idea. Um, I, you know, I, when we first started the bank, there were essentially five of us in a room smaller than the one I'm sitting in. And every time we hired somebody, we would spend so much time with them. You think we were, you know, you know, going to at least have a civil union, if not a marriage. Um, and, and that was critical because everybody who we hired we like we all shared the same values that didn't mean we disagreed and we made what we did make one hiring mistake early on and i have to tell you that cost us a lot because okay. we did just one person out of that you know sort of t out of the first 10 and that ended up just really costing us and you know i can see it years later you know our trajectory is just a little bit different than it might have been had we had really all like-minded people at the beginning yeah. Yeah, very good point. So true. Values higher based on values um, and make decisions based on values as well, which very much ties back into in good faith too. Um, let's let's switch gears a little bit before we wrap up today. I'd love to hear. So your father survived the Holocaust. Yes. Share with us that. That's a pretty big adversity to have in within your family system. Like, had that not have happened, you very well might not be here. Well. I mean, I, I'll tell you, I'll even back up a little beyond that. So my father was growing up in Sveksna, Lithuania, young man. Um, his, his father, so the Nazis came. And here's, uh, you know, unfortunately not a happy story. Uh, the Nazis came, they rounded up the Jews. And my father... His father was murdered before they left Svexner. My father's brothers were murdered and his uncles were murdered. And he was sent to a, um, 
work camp uh, because he was young. And, and, and the sad thing is, is all of the neighbors, you know, who were not Jewish stood around looking at this happening. I mean, nobody, I mean, it was probably a risky thing, but nobody, nobody did anything. Let me put it that way. And my closest relative because of that is on my father's side is a second cousin once removed. And that's only lucky. This was a woman who had gone to, to Palestine at the time to work on a kibbutz and couldn't make it back. Otherwise, I don't know where my, my closest relative might be. Who knows? So my father grew up, you know, he grew up knowing, first of all, well, my father never complained. My father had a very tough life. Uh, you know, again, coming as close to death as one can come with, without. And yet he taught me not to complain, to look forward. And look, he said something to me once or twice when I complained. He said, you know, he said, you know, this isn't the whole, this isn't the concentration camps. And you can, there's no comeback. I mean, if someone says that to you as a survivor, you, you, you just like have to say, no, it's not too bad. You know, this is overcomable. You yeah. know, this is overcomable. It's not a death camp. And my father literally overcame a death camp to, to make it to Chicago and survive. So as long as he was alive, he could go forward. And, you know, he taught me that. I mean, it certainly impacted his whole life, but he came back. He built a life. He got married in Chicago somehow. He had a son. And, you know, he became a carpenter because he had done carpentry in the, in the work camp. So he had some skills, was able to join a union and become a little, at some point, a carpenter contractor. So from a comeback, I mean, my father doesn't get much, much more no. lower, what, at least, than my father. In, what does he put bed. down? Like, what does he put down to the reason how he was able to, to survive the Holocaust and, and out of the concentration camps? Because obviously so many people didn't. What does he put it down to? Like, has he ever shared why he believes that he, he, he survived? So my father's passed away now, but I will say this. He... Um, one of the most important things, and this has been now confirmed with research, is my father had the will to believe that ultimately he would get out of there. Ultimately, he would succeed. But he didn't think it was going to happen tomorrow or the next day. So he had a long-term vision that he would, he would make it. But the people who always thought it would, unfortunately, people who thought it would happen tomorrow, the day after the allies would come and they died because at a certain point they, they, they couldn't take the, sh the disappointment. So my father okay. kept a positive long-term attitude, but not necessarily a, a positive short-term attitude because he realized it's not getting better real quick and I got to get through this. Mm -hmm. And even when he was liberated at 60 pounds, he had the great fortune to be liberated by the American forces who nursed, they knew you couldn't just give a 60 pound person food. You had to give them IV, you had to nurse them back to health. Mm. And he, he was, so he was always so grateful to the United States because who else would pick up somebody? But he had that law, his determination was, was mm. iron. And, and it's inspiring because yeah. 
you know, how else can I, I can't help but be inspired. I mean, for my father, I'm nothing compared to my father. I mean, you know what he went through. Yeah. It's just like, I remember reading a book, a man's search for meaning. Victor Frankl. Yeah. Yes. Right? Who, who survived the, the concentration camps yeah. and his insight was very, very similar to what you just shared about your father's, which he, he survived because he had a vision. He, had, he could see a picture far beyond being stuck with inside those concentration camps where many others didn't. Many others' vision was that the truck pulling up that, that made them feel they're about to get out. And when it didn't happen, they lost all hope. They'd broken. And as random as this all comes out, this ties in beautifully to what we've been speaking about previous on this episode, which is around the importance of having that you know, being long-term greedy, having that long-term attitude of gratitude allows you to wither the storms and the day-to-day challenges that do come up in business and life. Like if you can't have that long-term vision for your business and for your clients, you're not going to survive the, the rise and the fall of the tides. Yes. Um, and I, I think, you know, it ties a lot back into the values as well. You mentioned, you know, like he, he had the values around the importance of where he was heading and what he was doing. He had the faith, in that as well, and he held true to the faith, regardless of what happened on a day-to-day basis. Yes, you said you you got it, you got it. Wow, he was a great man, and and that's a lesson we can all learn. Wow, Scott, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate, to have you uh, on the show today. Uh, is there any piece of advice you'd like to leave the the listeners or the viewers today before kind of sharing how they can reach out if they want to find out more about you? Sure. Well, they can reach out about me at scottshay.com, S-H-A-Y, where I write a lot and update a lot. And I have a newsletter and they can get the book. And actually, there's a way if they go, by the way, if you are watching this and you go to the newsletter portion, there's a way to get the book at a discount. So you can get 20% off. Um, so I'm, I'm, I have an active, I, so I have an active website and there's a contact form. So, and I read, the only thing I would say to people is sometimes I get like chapter length emails. So if you want an answer, please make it a couple, a few paragraphs. Um, and I, I do try to answer people, but, um, and so I'm, so people can contact me that way. And my advice to people is my, my, is, is, you know, if I could leave people with one, one sort of business advice, and I've learned this, is that you can recover from a lot of things in business. One thing that you, it's really hard to recover from is a bad partner. So when you pick, when you pick your partner for business, that's the most important thing. And, yeah. and, and if you've got a good partner, you can overcome a mountain coming at yeah. you. If you have a bad partner, you're in serious trouble. Yeah. Outstanding advice. Scott Shea, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. And uh, I trust that all the viewers and listeners have got something from this. Please uh, help us out. Make sure you jump onto iTunes or uh, any of the social platforms and give us a five-star review on the comeback game. Uh, like it, share it around, and uh, let us know what you found most impactful from today's episode. Scott, look forward to having you on the show again soon. Thanks for your time. It's a pleasure, Barry. Thank you.
If you're in a position that many of our clients were before joining us, which is that your business is controlling you, rather than you controlling your business, we would love to have a chat to you to see whether or not we might be the right fit to partner with you to help you grow and succeed in business. And over the past eight years, we've helped hundreds of business owners around the world to grow, scale and succeed in business. Uh, many of our clients report that we've helped them to triple their profits and double their time off in 12 months or less. If you jump onto YouTube and notice the hundreds of testimonies, you'd see that this is a common theme amongst them. If you're a business owner that's generating more than $300,000 a year in annual revenue, uh, whether it's 500 million, 5 million, even $10 million a year, and you're looking to take your business and your life to the next level, we might be able to help. If you're noticing that your business is lacking structure, maybe systems or processes, maybe you're not quite attracting enough or, or the right type of quality leads, making enough sales, or maybe you've been having issues finding, hiring, retaining, and training the right team members, we could be a fit for you. Ultimately, we believe that we never have business problems, we have personal problems that are expressed through our business. And a lot of the work we do is with you as the business owner, helping you to constantly upgrade the way that you see life, the way that you make decisions, and the way that you help construct a profitable and purpose-driven business. In order for us to do that though, you need to book in a quick 15-minute uh, application call with one of our scaling specialists here at The Game Changers. Through the 15-minute call, we're gonna ask you a bunch of questions to see if or how we might better help you. If we can't help you, we'll let you know politely and do our best to point in the direction of someone that can. However, we can help you, we look at booking you a one-hour game plan session where we're gonna dive a lot deeper into where you and your business are at right now, where it is that you want to go in the next three, five, and 10 years time, and what are the potential roadblocks or challenges or even opportunities that are along the journey in order for you to get there faster. If you're really feeling that it's time for you to experience the love and the joy of running a business again, if you're really wanting to experience a business that does actually operate without you while still producing profit, uh, we may very well be the right fit. So book in a 15 minute call, we can have a chat and uh, see where we go from there. My name is Babo Diddy and uh, thanks for listening. Hopefully we'll get a chance to talk soon.